So when you are in a special flood hazard area and there's a map developed for your area, depending on what the rules and regulations are in that area will determine what your finished floor elevation of your structure is supposed to be. So depending on what your finished floor structure is supposed to be, that's what you would have to construct to for new construction. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. I want to thank you for joining the show. I am extremely humbled that you're here listening to me wherever you're at. I'm also excited about our guest today. Kelly is the floodplain coordinator at the city of Marco Island in Florida. You heard that right. This is the first one we've had outside the state of Texas. She's a certified floodplain manager, and with that, has helped her to become the floodplain manager for the city. Before working in the city, Kelly worked with the coastal engineering firm handling the various permitting needs of their clients. The city she works for, Marco Island, is a barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico off southwest Florida. It's linked to the mainland by bridges south of the city of Naples, just to give you an idea of where she's at. As floodplain coordinator, she administers the FEMA regulations and local building code. She also handles plan reviews within the special flood hazard zone areas. And on top of that, she has become a resource of extreme knowledge on flooding for the citizens of Marco Island, along with all of her Twitter followers that she lovingly refers to as her floodies. In this episode, we're going to discuss the various terminology and jargon involved with the FEMA flood hazard zones, ways to mitigate your risk against potential flooding, and loads of advice for someone looking to develop within a special flood hazard zone. I am literally excited to dive into this show. So as always, if you have enjoyed this show, please subscribe to this show and share with your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Kelly. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to have you on here. Thank you. Like I said in my introduction before the show, that uh, you're you're a floodplain coordinator there in Marco Island, Florida. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you uh, came to where you are at? Okay, yes, of course. Um, So I am a certified floodplain manager, which is a certificate recognized by FEMA um, through the Association of State Floodplain Managers. And with that certificate, I have transitioned into becoming the city of Marco Island's floodplain manager. I've been with the city for the last four years. And prior to working for the city, I had worked for a coastal engineering firm here locally in Naples. Um, I worked with them for eight years, did all their DEP permitting, their coastline permitting, plan review. Um, That was more geared towards the sea turtle lighting and the type of construction that you're allowed to do on the coast here in Southwest Florida. 
Um, yeah. So once I was working with them and I've learned everything, it just kind of, um, flowed into, um, having to work with the building department here on Marco Island and they just happened to need a certified floodplain manager. Their previous one had left and asked me to apply. And here I am four years later working for them. So what, uh, what interests you so much about you know, the coastal engineering, what, what brought you to that field? Um, I actually had a really good interview and I had background with permitting. And so, because I understood that, um, I was able to just, um, kind of fall into the position. I started out more administrative, but then gradually moved into other DEP coordinator plan reviewer for the construction on the coast. Um, what, caught my eye with that is when I moved down to Florida from Washington state, I never realized that beaches were developed and designed and you pumped in sand. And then all (laughs) of a sudden this whole new world opened up and I'm like, what is going on over here? So I gradually got more and more into it. And, um, that kind of coincides with what I do now here at the city of Marco. Interesting. So you came from Washington state all the way down. All the way down, and I absolutely love Florida. <laughs> it's definitely a little different than Washington State. Yes, yes, it's beautiful. So can you kind of give us a day-to-day of, of what you do there as a floodplain coordinator? Yeah, so as a floodplain coordinator for the city, um, on the daily, I'm responsible for administering and implementing the federal floodplain management regulations, uh, the Florida Building Code, uh, local regulations which might um, meet or exceed the state and federal regulations. I review building plans. Um, I'm part of the growth management development. I participate on um, what's called the local mitigation strategy working group here within Collier County's emergency management. I help residents um, review their flood insurance to make sure they're being accurately rated. Um, Going through plan review is probably the biggest thing. And because Marco Island is a four by six island and we're a barrier island, so 99% of the island is located in a special flood hazard area. So anything (laughs) that's within that special flood hazard area, whether uh, it's new construction, alteration, any type of alteration or new construction, I'm going to be reviewing the plans to ensure that they meet or exceed the floodplain management regulations. So so you basically do it all is what you're saying. Uh, I mean, we could just go ahead and put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, I work with the structural engineers and the electrical engineers because all of that plays together. So while they're reviewing more for Florida building code requirements, I am as well. But under their purview, because they're, um, I'll go through like the finished floor elevations with them, where the mechanical equipment or any machinery servicing the structure that you might need, you know, generator, water heater, uh, air conditioning equipment, make sure it's at the right elevation. That, um, and then it gets all the way into the commercial structures, and each of these have different requirements. And you can go into the year the house was constructed. And so there's a lot of review um, from on my behalf that goes into the construction here on the island. Right. What percentage of, uh, of the buildings there are, are on stilts? 
I'm just the, curious. <laughs> yeah, the elevated structures, I would probably say um, maybe 10 to 12 percent um, okay. because the way construction works down here is elevated buildings in the flood world are the most ideal. And if I had my way, I'd have everybody construct that way <laughs> just to not impede the floodwaters. However, a lot of people build on backfilled stem walls here. So where mm -hmm. a lot of places um, up north might have a crawl space or even a basement, we're building that up on fill. And so that stem wall is backfilled. So mm -hmm. you'll be two to three feet up off of the ground where, but it'll be on a backfilled stem wall to where that is gonna be the protectant um, if floodwaters were to happen. Gotcha. It would relieve that hydrostatic pressure or that hydrostatic buoyancy of it. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, all structures are constructed with some form of footer and piling foundation. Gotcha. So I guess let's go into a little bit. You mentioned special flood hazard areas. Maybe go into a little detail about what that is and what that means. Okay, a special flood hazard area is any area covered by floodwaters of what the base flood would be. So what that means is FEMA, the um, Federal Emergency Management, they go and they have a mapping department and it's their mapping service department where they'll go around and they'll do LIDAR, um, you know, depending on how old the maps are and when the maps were being developed, they'll just, do LIDAR. Go ahead. Sorry, uh, just for people that don't know what that is. Oh, uh, I forget. LIDAR. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's it's the measurement tool that they use to determine the base flood elevation or the flood risk of an area. And so it's, um, I can't remember exactly what the acronym stands for off the top of my head. Um, like, I can't remember right at the second, yeah. but it's, it's their measurement tool that they use um, to determine what they perceive floodwaters might be in a particular area. So it's so, basically, it basically shows the elevations... Yes, and of so the existing ground. Yes. yes, of the of the topography of the existing ground, correct. Mm -hmm. And so, with us being a coastal area, they do what are called um, transects. So they'll take transects from. I don't know the engineering part in this. I'm not an engineer, so I don't exactly know how they do it, but I just know this is how they get their results to determine mm -hmm. if you're in a special flood hazard area. And so they, they develop these transects from wave action and rain combined and will determine if an area they believe will be flooded with floodwaters. We all know that if it rains, it can always flood, but how much um, flooding could possibly happen in that area? Mm -hmm. And that's where these special flood hazard maps come into play. Where FEMA develops these maps for flood insurance purposes, you, um, for flood insurance purposes, us locals in the Florida Building Code use them for construction purposes. So when you are in a special flood hazard area and there is a map developed for your area, depending on what the rules and regulations are in that area, will determine what your finished floor elevation of your structure is supposed to be. So depending on what your finished floor structure is supposed to be, that's what you would have to construct to for new construction. And it also is used, like I said, by the flood insurance agents where they're going to determine your flood insurance by what base flood elevation you're in to what your finished floor of your structure is. Gotcha. Now that's a lot at once, yeah. but no, that's, that's perfect. And you mentioned new structures. So 
What about existing structures that you're looking to potentially renovate or, or, or redevelop? Is What's required there? That gets a little bit more tricky because what that goes off of, it all depends on what year that house was constructed. Now, here on, the, on Marco Island, our very first firm was established and adopted in uh, 1979. So anything constructed before 1979 is considered a pre-firm structure. It was constructed before any maps or any regulations existed. Now, anything after 1979 to 1980 here, that is called a post-firm structure, meaning there were flood regulations at the time of construction. And so they adhered to some form of regulation. So they have different requirements than what a pre-firm structure would have when altering or constructing any alterations or modifications to it. Now, it all goes back to what your local requirements are and what your building code requires as well. Here in mm -hmm. Florida, our pre-firm and post-firm have different regulations when doing alterations to them. So it really depends a lot on the age of the structure of what you can and can't do to the structure, which mm. falls back to, um, which th these are all federal regulations where once um, you adopt the, NF uh, the flood insurance rate maps, you adhere to the federal regulations. And they're the ones who determined, um, you know, we're going to do maps for this area. So anything before is the pre-firm structure. So all of this does go back to FEMA and their regulations. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a big difference between them. So once your finished floor, if it is below the floodplain requirements, like the finished floor of your, ele the elevation of your finished floors below that base flood elevation, you then fall into what is called FEMA's 50% regulation, which is you can't exceed the value of your structure more than 50%. Hmm. And 50% meaning just the structure and discussion, not the deck, the dock, the seawall, the property. It's just whatever that value of that structure is, you can't exceed it more than 50%. Now that goes along with damage. So whether you're improving or damaging it, you can't exceed that value. And so there's there's a lot to it once it becomes an existing structure when there are finished floors below the required elevation. And, that's and that where was the FEMA regulation you said? That is, yes, that is a FEMA 50% regulation and okay. it's called substantial improvement or substantial damage because they both fall under the same category. So after Irma, we'll use Irma for an example. I was here during Irma that's quite the experience. Um, and after Irma, there were two structures which their finished floor elevation was below base flood. The damage that was caused by Irma, which was not flooding, exceeded that 50% value of the structure. And it, there's two different ways you can determine that value, but I don't feel we just need to go into that right now. Sure. Um, so it exceeded that 50%. So then it became the homeowner's insurance you know, issue. And they end up tearing down both of those structures because I couldn't sign off on the applications for them to have a permit to correct the issue because it exceeded that threshold. Hmm. 
And wow. so there, yeah, it's, it's a lot when it comes to the base flood elevation and what your finished floor elevation is. Now, again, it's a it difference from community to community, but, um, in the end, um, it's still the same FEMA 50% regulation. Gotcha. That's interesting. It's not good news always. <laughs> <laughs> well, natural disasters are never good news. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> interesting. So I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about what the requirements were for finished floor? I, I believe you mentioned that typically most m most municipalities require at least a foot above uh, base flood elevation uh, in the special hazard zone. Yes. So, so what that means is the minimum standard for the National Flood Insurance Program, which is people refer to FEMA, that's just the easiest way to do it because um, they're part of FEMA, is um, their requirement is that your finished floor must be at base flood. Here in the state of Florida, as of 2017, they adopted a higher regulatory standard above and beyond what FEMA requires. And that's called freeboard. And freeboard is that base flood elevation plus one foot above that. And so whatever FEMA has developed on their flood insurance rate maps, which I'll refer to as the firms, um, whatever FEMA has developed on the firms for the base flood elevation for new construction and substantial improvement, that's where that 50% rule applies. For substantial improvement, you must have your finished floor at base flood elevation plus one. Now, here on Marco Island, we've gone above and beyond that. So where the Florida Building Code has gone above and beyond what the NFIP requires for a minimum. In some of our areas here on the island, we have a base flood elevation plus two. And so it's like the, the federal requirements are a minimum standard that you must adhere to. However, it's always in the best interest of the, the state and the local to adopt higher if they feel that the minimum um, is not the best for the local or the state requirements. And so by us having enforced these freeboard requirements longer than um, the state or FEMA, it'll help in the long run for our residents for when the flood insurance rate maps are updated and the base flood elevations might um, become higher, um, a higher elevation. It helps keep them, you know, compliant and helps with their flood insurance in the end and the, the resiliency. That's because a good the higher, point. the better. <laughs> That's a good point. The, the firm maps change. They're not set in stone. Certain things change uh, as information gets better or mm -hmm. as more information comes about, these, these maps change. And so by allowing a higher free or requiring a higher... Uh, finished floor elevation, you're effectively adding an additional layer of insurance that those new firm panels that come out don't push them into a floodplain or they're, they're building into a, a high risk or into a point where they would require flood insurance. Correct. Yeah. So, so the high, the way the flood insurance works is the higher the elevation, the lower your premium is going to be. If you're in a flood insurance, or if you're in flood insurance area, if you're in a special flood hazard area, you have a federally backed mortgage, you're required by law to have flood insurance. So the higher your finished floor is above that base flood elevation, the lower your premium is. Now, 
depending on what year, again, when it comes to the pre-firm and the post-firm, everybody actually ends up paying the same amount of money for flood insurance. So if you have two houses right next to each other um, that are the same elevation, um, the same amount of coverage, you're paying the same deductible, you're going to have the same cost for your flood insurance coverage. It doesn't go by like, you know, car insurance or homeowner's insurance. Um, it doesn't go by your your credit score or anything. It's just uh, this is what your fee is going to be if you're this many feet above base flood. For instance, here on the island, because um, I do review flood insurance declarations often when I'm doing plan review, I like to ensure that the resident is being rated correctly for their flood insurance on the most current map we have here. Um, so I'll go and I'll look at it and I'll see um, a house that is, for instance, in a base flood elevation of nine. They have a finished floor of 11. So they're going to be two feet above that base flood. If they have the standard deductible of $1,200 and full coverage, I know that they're going to be paying between $700 to $900 for flood insurance. You know, and then once you get up to if you're base flood elevation plus one, you'll be paying roughly $900 to $1,200 depending on what your deductible is and if you have full coverage or not. So everybody pays the same amount depending on how many um, feet you're above the base flood and depending on if you're the pre-firm structure or post-firm structure. Hmm. And so it's, to me, flood insurance is pretty simple. It's the same across the board, but you always have to just double check. You're rated on the most current map. You have, you know, if it's a post-firm or pre-firm, which is the better rating for you. And so um, it's, it's one of those things that unless, you know, you look at it on the daily or understand and read it, you're, kind of don't understand it. So I try to help the residents understand their flood insurance, what it covers and to help that they're, you know, not overpaying for their flood insurance. Yeah. So that's, I do that on the daily when I'm doing plan review. I'm like, oh, you have your flood insurance declaration. Can I look at it? I want to make sure, <laughs> you know, so because between flood insurance rate maps, um, there's, there's a different datum that could, that could have been used. And so you always have to, in 2005, and I'm not sure if you're, if you've worked in special flood hazard area, you might be, mm -hmm. um, knowledge of the NGVD versus the NAVD, which mm -hmm. is, um, national geodetic vertical datum versus North America vertical datum. So mm -hmm. then you have to get into what datum are you in? Is this going to affect your flood insurance? We want to make sure you're rated correctly. And so you have to be very, um, you have to pay attention to what datum you're even rated on with your flood insurance. So it, there's a lot to it. And unless you do it on the daily, it's really hard for some to understand. That's why I try to help them go through and understand that flood right. insurance. Now, that's a good point. And I would say if anybody is even thinks they might be in a uh, special flood hazard area to go ahead and discuss that with uh, your your local floodplain coordinator, because a lot of times and we were talking about this before the call, but there's certain areas within a city that aren't necessarily uh, shown on a firm panel, but uh, mm -hmm. can provide localized flooding. So if you're in doubt, uh, I would definitely reach out before you. You either purchase a piece of property or, or you know, you're looking at uh, developing a, a piece of property. 
it's always best. I always, um, I do outreaches to realtors on the annual because they're the first line of defense to try to get that buyer to put them in contact with their floodplain manager. But mm-hmm. exactly as you expressed, it is best to always reach out to your floodplain manager and to have them help you determine if that is the best property for you with regard to the flood risk that could possibly be. Um, Sometimes here I'll, I'll have a future resident call and they're like, I have five properties I'm looking at. I'm like, just email them to me. I don't want you to be in my office after you purchase those properties upset (laughs) that you were something wasn't disclosed. And so, um, I'm like, keep sending them to me until you know, which one is best for you. Um, sometimes I don't give the best and the happiest of the news, but, Mm -hmm. um, maybe that wasn't the best house for them is what I try to express to them. Um, and explain to them, you know, the flood risk, um, it's being a barrier island. There's always the chance of a flood risk. Um, you never know what's going to happen. And like you've expressed the localized flooding. Um, but one benefit that the national flood insurance program does provide to the local municipality is, um, on the annual, they'll provide um, all the flood insurance policies that were paid out so we couldn't get with stormwater management to see where the the troubled areas are to see if why are these houses flooding and no other mm-hmm. house on the street is flooding. So we get a printout of all the policies that were paid out and which I'll get with stormwater and we'll be like, how can we better this because we need to not have these houses flooding. So as a municipality, that's one thing that you always want to be in contact with is your NFIP agent or the insurance service officer if you participate in the community rating system program. But there's always ways to better that stormwater or management to help with that localized flooding. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I have a, a specific question, mainly because I've dealt with this myself, but and this is probably nothing new to, to you. Uh, on the coast when 99% of your (laughs) properties are in a special flood hazard zone, but um, below grade parking or below base flood elevation parking, what are the ramifications? Are there any, or we're looking at, I've, I've had some properties in more localized flooding, not necessarily FEMA flooding, but we had to provide parking on a you know like a two or three story town home mm-hmm. or an apartment complex the parking you know we get around by having that you know below base flood but are there any issues with with that from FEMA's standpoint or from that that's actually a good that's a good question because that actually flows into what I was referring to earlier with regard to the finished floor elevation of the habitable portion of structures. Mm-hmm. There's three things that FEMA allows below base flood, and um, that is storage, access, and parking. So you are, we are very happy when that parking is on that ground level and below and the structures are constructed above it. Um, mm-hmm. Cause that's, we look at that as an elevated structure. And mm-hmm. so the, the one thing is we do have a few under um, structure parking here and a lot of them did complain about the flooding after Irma, which we didn't get too much substantial flooding here in the Island. 
Um, but with their area, it's you have to make sure you have adequate sump pumping. If you want that water out of there, you just have to make sure your drainage is accurate or you mm -hmm. don't park there when there's a storm or you predict a flood coming. But storage access and parking is absolutely 100% allowed below base flood as long as it meets the requirements of those items. And there's no additional insurance that's involved with, with that. It's just no. you're assumed it's a, an elevated structure, like you're saying. And the, the one thing, and I actually just, I knew this, but I understood, I just went to a, in a national flood insurance program, adjust flood adjusters um, class, I guess you could call it. It was an eight hour class. And I just went just to kind of understand what they do, but, and they brought up some good points in which I kind of already knew. So what FEMA considers an insurable structure is two walls and a roof. So if you're up on pilings and you, the parking garages have no form of walls, then it's not considered an insurable structure by FEMA. However, mm -hmm. Even though it's not an insurable structure through the National Flood Insurance Program, if you're still located in a base flood elevate um, in a special flood hazard area, you still have to adhere to the floodplain requirements. Now, the the requirements are you have to use flood resistant material below the required elevation. Any machinery servicing the structure, electrical or anything, if it's not GIF, GIS or GIF, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, protected, then it just needs to be above that required elevation. But once the, the parking garages, like I said, those those you want below base flood because you're you don't have your livelihood down here is what they look because you can always move your car into mm -hmm. a higher area. Mm hmm. I've got a I've got another interesting question here. So what is the most common misconception when it comes to flood hazard zones? Um, my just because the flood insurance rate map doesn't show you in a flood special flood hazard area doesn't mean you're not going to flood. <laughs> um, and that that's a well. I've lived here 60 years and it's never flooded. Okay, but if it rains, it floods and it goes again back to your localized flooding that possibly the weir broke or the, the drain got clogged because it wasn't cleaned that year or something, you know, some kids threw <laughs> some stuff in it. So it's, if it rains, it's going to flood. And I always like to say floods, no, no lines. <laughs> and so you have to take that flood insurance rate map with a grain of salt and use it just as a guidance and think of protecting your property. Um, it's one of those things. It's like purchasing a structure and buying a property is a gamble, but protecting it doesn't have to be, you know, protect it with the flood insurance, um, mitigate the structure, you know, put flood vents in the garage area if it's below base flood. Um, there's there's things you could do. And so just because you're not within that boundary and you're right next to it on a flood map doesn't mean that that mother nature is going to listen to that map. And so <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And, and you got to also remember that the flood maps are also based on historical data and datum because it takes them several years to prepare them. And it might not be prepared with the most current datum to show your flood risk. And mm -hmm. so, again, you have to remember, we can never predict what Mother Nature is going to do, but we can prepare and kind of go with the worst case scenario that has already happened. 
Speaking like a true floodplain coordinator right there. <laughs> yes, it's it's in my blood. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's very true. It's all the like you said, the the LIDAR information that they use is it's okay, but it's not it's not a hundred percent accurate. I mean it's you know, it's very high level and then also you're using historical data and and we've seen that uh, intensity values for for rainfall events have increased, and mm-hmm. um, so and some of these storms are are getting to be a little a little wilder than they expected. So it's like you said, those lines are just lines, and they're they're really just to determine your <laughs> insurance payment. <laughs> yes, that's that's actually that is correct, and that's one of the reasons why um, I expressed earlier that the Florida Building Code and us locally here on Marco Island have decided to increase, you know, uh, specific requirements within the National Flood Insurance Program because we know that they're a minimum, but we're a barrier island in Hurricane Alley, if that's what you want to call it. We need to make sure that we're prepared and that you know we're helping our residents as much as we can with our knowledge and our um, expertise because they're not as familiar with what's required or you know or maybe they're new to the area or they have that thought process oh it's never flooded here it's never going to flood so (laughs) well i appreciate your time i got one more question though Mm -hmm. so what do you believe has made you successful as a floodplain coordinator um this might sound a little odd but i I have learned to give really bad news in a really good way. I am able to promote the floodplain regulations, which sometimes people, it's hard for them to grasp or understand. And I've been able to help them understand. I've been, um, because of my expertise, um, I can help them understand. I can show them things that have, you know, happened in the past. I have probably the best network um, like I call them my floodies or what they are, um, because I'm really close with, um, the floodplain managers within Collier County, within the city of Naples, which is in Collier, Lee County is the next County over those five floodplain managers. There Our state floodplain manager is always there if we need him, but it, it really is the networking within the floodplain management that has helped me exceed because you come across something that you never had happened. You're like, well, somebody's had, this has had to happen to someone before. So you reach out to your network and you're like, what do I do? And so, cause we're always striving for the same thing within the flood world, even though we do it differently in the end, it's that flood resilience that we want to do. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. That makes. Yeah. So essentially you're saying reaching out to your network, learning, and then being able to being able to give people good or bad news. In a, <laughs> it in it a sounds point. really weird saying that, but I've literally have had people in my office like crying because a realtor has said they were um, exempt from the floodplain regulations. They just bought this house and 
And, and I love working through those things because we say here in the building department, if there's a will, there's a way. I was able to just sit with them, work with them where it all started out as bad news. But in the end, they were able to get exactly what they wanted, a little different than what they originally wanted, but they were still able to get what they wanted. And so it's, it's at first starts out at bad news, but in the end, I always try to do the best I can to help them because it's one of those things you have to have compassion in order to help these people and put yourself in their, in their situation. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of it's how you communicate with others and, and a lot of people just want to voice their uh, concerns. So <laughs> yes, I listen to a lot of those and, you know, and I, um, as part of the um, part of being part of the National Flood Insurance Program, um, outreach is one of the requirements that we do. Because um, what I didn't get to state earlier is FEMA actually comes down and audits us, the city of Marco, every three years to make sure that we're um, adhering to their regulations and going above and beyond beyond what we've promised them that they would. And so I always have to make sure, you know, the I'm doing the outreach to the residents and the realtors. And I thought that's probably one of my favorite parts of my job is the outreach and sitting and educating is huge in the flood world. Because again, you don't know about it unless somebody's actually talked to you about it because it's not advertised. It's not talked about. It's, you know, so that getting out there with the residents and helping them understand is is a really big part. Yeah, definitely. And uh, if you want to reach out to Kelly, you can uh, find her Twitter as well. I'll put that up on the uh, on this podcast. But uh, yes, it's Flood Geek One Hundred One. That is it. <laughs> <laughs> Surprising so, that wasn't taken when I developed yeah. my my account. <laughs> definitely. So if you want to join the Floody community, yeah. you can. Follow her on Twitter. With that, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get back to spreading the gospel of yes of, <laughs> of flood flood insurance and, and the the flood hazard program. So I I really appreciate your time, Kelly. All right, thank you for the opportunity. 